This is the Emergency Medical Minute. Real, raw, relevant emergency medical education. the show. Our next speaker gives me great pleasure to announce a young lady whose name is Sarah York-Williams. She is a PhD candidate at the University of Colorado, and she's in this bridge between psychology and psychopharmacology, is that correct? Neuroscience, how the brain works. Amazing. Okay, so she's going to talk to us about um, high-potency cannabis and cannabinoids. So thank you so much. everyone. Thank you for having me here today. It's a real pleasure to be um, among so many people who are already quite distinguished professionals in this field when I'm really just starting off. Um, So I'm a third year PhD student at CU Boulder, well situated for this type of cannabis research. Um, And I'm pursuing a dual PhD in neuroscience and clinical psychology. And my research and the research of my lab attempts to kind of be at the intersection of these two fields. So clinical psychology and neuroscience. So how cannabis impacts the mind, which is kind of more subjective, and the brain, which can be objectively measured, right? So um, that's what my lab does. Um, And just to kind of throw it out there, um, I know the title of my talk um, included the words high-potency cannabis, and that's totally something I'll be talking about, but I'm also going to address a broader scope of our research because I think it's going to be pretty informative to this audience. Um, And I also just wanted to apologize briefly if any of the stuff I talk about is redundant with anyone else who spoke. I landed from California just a couple hours ago and rushed over here, so I didn't uh, catch the first couple of speakers, Um, but hopefully my information will be brand new to you guys. And you can just like do this if I say something you've already heard before. So um, you guys have heard from different um, people in this field, um, both the scientific and the medical understanding of cannabis use right now, right? Um, And cannabis research has been around for decades and decades. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of the research that's currently out there um, isn't really translatable to the real world too much. Um, And that's where some of my lab's new research comes in. Um, and I'll talk more about that in detail soon. But um, one, of the, one of the reasons why I get to be up here today is because my lab at CU Boulder has received funding from NIH as well as um, some local state funding to study the impact of real-world cannabis use. Um, for those of you who think back to research methods classes in college and things like that, if you think about controlled experiments where we're really trying to understand Um, sort of uh, dismantle cannabis, right? And understand the different mechanisms and understand the different consequences of cannabis use. Um, The experiments that are out there right now are a little bit lacking in their external validity, in in the extent to which we can translate results from those experiments to what we see in the real world. And there are a couple of main barriers there that are really big barriers um, that I will be talking about today. Number one is the concentration, the potency of cannabis. The other is the ratio of 
THC, which you guys have heard a lot about today, with other cannabinoids, such as CBD. Um, and then another is the, the root of administration and the, the self-administration component of cannabis in the real world versus um, how it is administered in laboratories. Um, and then the last component is um, being able to assess cannabis, uh, the effects of cannabis use immediately after cannabis use, rather than, you know, trying to see, like, cumulatively, if someone smoked a lot in their life, what does that mean for their cognitive abilities now, right? We want to know if we give someone cannabis that does reflect real-world use, um, what does, uh, how does that impact them? And the way to do that is to be able to assess them scientifically as soon as possible after using cannabis. So those are kind of the, the main issues. Um, and I'm lucky enough to be a graduate student sort of on the frontier of the research that's helping to really bridge the gaps in our understanding of real-world cannabis use. So um, let's start with concentration of THC. Um, so I think we all have heard enough about THC to get a, you know, to have a general understanding of what it is, right? It's the main, it's the primary psychoactive component in cannabis. Um, and in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, even into the 90s, the potency of cannabis was in the low single-digit percentages. So in the 60s, it was like between 2 and 2.5% two and was sort of what was out there. Um, and then in, uh, as of 1995, nationally, the average potency of cannabis uh, for THC was 3.5%. So that's the dry weight of the cannabis plant, the bud part of the cannabis plant. Meaning that if you dehydrated the cannabis plant and then you sort of de you, um, dismantled it into its components, um, about 2% you know, of it would have been THC. Okay? Um, this figure rose a little bit in the mid-90s to about 3.5%. And does anyone want to take a guess, either from personal experience or patients that you know, what the average is in the Boulder, Denver area now? 17, 20? Yeah, actually, you guys did a really good job there. I guess you have actually seen this. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, nowadays it's uh, about 18%. That's the average. And there's a really wide range in there. So in um, local recreational dispensaries, you can see potencies of just the dry flower. I'm not talking about the high concentrate dabbing and things like that. Just the dry flower potencies of up to 28%. Um, and the lowest ones that are available tend to still be in the mid to high single digits, so around 8%. So that means that the lowest potency cannabis plant that's available is like twice as potent as what was available in the even just the mid-90s, which was not really that long ago, right? Now, research on cannabis dates back to the 70s and has come all the way through till now. Um, as you guys all know, cannabis is a very restricted drug in, in legal terms in this country. And what that means is in order to study cannabis, we need to apply for a permit uh, from the government, and then we get some cannabis from NIH, and then we're allowed to essentially dole cannabis out to our patients. We ask them to use a certain amount, and then, you know, they smoke it, and then they come in and we can do things to them, essentially, right? Test their cognitive ability and ask them how they feel and things like that, right? Does anyone want to guess what the potency of that cannabis is that we have access to to study? 3%, yeah. I didn't plant this person. She just knows this stuff. Um, 
So it's about 3%. So you guys can probably put the pieces together here and see why this is a problem for really understanding from a scientific point of view what's going on in the real world. And um, so that's, that's the problem of concentration, okay? And we'll get back to how we're helping to solve that soon. The next problem is cannabinoid ratios. So um, at last count, there were over 60 different types of cannabinoids that um, can be available in cannabis products. Um, and a lot of them are present in very, very trace amounts in just regular cannabis products that you consume, even though what you hear about is THC and sometimes CBD, right? Now, we don't know what it means to have trace amounts of these cannabinoids. It might not mean a whole lot, but we simply don't know. Um, and based on what we know about CBD, which is the second most well-known cannabinoid, it probably, these other cannabinoids probably do interact with THC in ways that we haven't fully understood. So a really good place to start with this problem of cannabinoid ratios is looking simply at CBD versus THC. So um, I believe you guys have already gotten a little bit of uh, the sort of the pharmacology of cannabis. Um, so the CB1 receptor, right, is um, a really important receptor in our brain and in our body. And cannabis binds to it and activates it to have both medical benefits and just recreational enjoyment, right? Um, and CBD, on the other hand, looks like one of the things it does is actually bind to those same receptors but not activate it, okay? So that, what that means is that if you're smoking a product that has THC and CBD in it, you might not get the same uh, physiological or psychological effects as if you were just using a product that had THC alone, because those cannabinoids, CBD and THC, are in some ways competing for the same receptors, right? Um, so in subjective reports, and this hasn't really been scientifically measured yet, QR lab, um, in subjective reports, it seems like using THC alone or CBD alone has really different effects than if you put them together. And this is the case even if you add just a little bit of CBD to a high THC strain. Of cannabis. So something to keep in mind when you, you know, when you hear about all of the different varieties that are out there. It really poses a, you know, a bit of a barrier to the scientific research of cannabis because it's just very, it's very varied. Um, so that's, that's sort of the second issue. The third issue, um, when you think of controlled laboratory studies, which is a really good first step in trying to understand how cannabis works, right, and how any substance works, is we don't actually have a firm grasp of how cannabis, how much cannabis people tend to use in the real world. Um, and to what extent people self-titrate their cannabis use based on their own perceived potency of that cannabis. So um, what that kind of means, if, if you think about with alcohol, you know, if you know that you like to have a certain am amount of alcohol in your system, you might know, you know, having one shot or two shots gets you there, and that's the same thing as having like three or four beers or whatever it is for you, right? Um, we don't know what that looks like with cannabis yet. Preliminary research in our lab suggests that people actually do, once they've used can um, a type of cannabis a few times, they start to get a feel for how high they want to get or how intoxicated they want to get or how much pain relief they want to get, whatever it is. And they start to use more or less in any given session of use based on that concentration. 
So it ends up, we end up with this issue of bringing people into the lab and wanting everyone to use the same amount, even though in real life, they might not all use the same amount. And unlike alcohol, the same amount of cannabis doesn't necessarily impact people the same way. We had a speaker, um, I think right before the intermission, who mentioned that, you know, for some people, cannabis actually increases concentration, right? It's likely that a certain um, a certain concentration of C THC in the blood for that person helps with concentration. And anything more than that is maybe a little too much, right? All of those questions remain to be answered. So having people come in for laboratory studies, not only are we giving them government-grown cannabis that is way lower in potency than what they're used to having, and we've actually gotten participant pushback on that because they feel like they're being asked to consume something that is so... Um, so unlike what they usually consume that it's not realistic to them. We've actually gotten that um, feedback before from multiple participants. We um, have that issue and we have the issue of knowing whether or not this actually translates to real world use for, you know, anyone. And then the, um, the last issue is this ability of ours, if we don't want to use, if we don't want to use government grown cannabis, we're not allowed to have people use cannabis on campus, right? This is gonna be the case for any university that gets any funding nationally, right? So because we get funding from NIH, we're not allowed to just have people bring their cannabis from their local dispensary, come use it in our lab, and then have us test them for whatever measures we wanna test them on, right? Um, and therefore, if we don't want them to use government-grown cannabis, we, and this is what we have done in the past, we ask them to use at home, and then we send them a taxi and have them come to our lab as soon as possible. So that's, that was our first workaround, was you know, asking them to come in, we, we teach them how to estimate how much cannabis they're using, um, and then we have them you know, smoke it, and then taxi on over to our lab as soon as possible. That brings up its own issues, right? People, um, people live different distances from our lab. People, um, you know, get stressed out from being in a taxi. They don't know the driver. You know, any number of things. Trying to find our lab, all kinds of things can be um, can result in inconsistency, right? In our data collection that way. So, um, what our lab has done, and this is uh, with funding um, from NIH, like I said, is we've actually created a mobile laboratory. So we've gotten ourselves a nice fancy van, um, and inside that van is everything we need in order to assess the things we want to assess, other than an MRI scanner, which I would love as a neuroscientist, but that's not in the, in the budget yet. Um, so what we have right now is a laboratory that looks nice and comfortable on the inside. It has a station for us to draw people's blood so we can get cannabinoid levels in their blood. Um, it has a computer station where they can perform cognitive tasks. And then it has also um, just an iPad with a set of questionnaires for them to let us know how they're feeling, right? How mentally stoned they feel, how physically stoned they feel, how much they crave more cannabis, all kinds of sort of subjective measures in addition to those objective measures of blood concentrations of different cannabinoids um, and, cognitive, and cognitive testing. So this way, we're able to ask people, essentially, to use, we kind of suggest, this is how we get around it, we suggest that people use specific strains of cannabis that we point them to at specific dispensaries in Boulder, Colorado. And we ask them to use just that strain for a few days to kind of get used to it. And we don't at all suggest how much they use. We just say, you know, use it as you would regularly use it. 
And then we drive up to their house and we ask them to come into our lab, do some baseline measures, then go back home, just like skip out onto the driveway back home, use some cannabis, and come back into our lab. And that way, we're able to address all of, uh, or a lot of the concerns that I mentioned. So um, among the different cannabis types that we suggest for people to use include potencies up to 28% of cannabis, we have 18%, we have 12%. In future, we're looking to use even lower strains, um, as well as strains that have CBD in them. So we're working with dispensaries where we have um, chemotyping, where we're able to see what the plant actually looks like in terms of their cannabinoid ratios. Then we are able to ask the participants to use it immediately and come in and we can measure them. And um, that kind of can help us address the concentration issue because we can kind of not use government-grown cannabis. Um, it helps us to address the titration issue because we can just see, well, how much are people using, right? We can measure it in their blood. We also measure how much they use. Uh, you know, we, we measure their, um, the amount they have on their person before they go use, and then they use it, and we measure it again so we know exactly how much they've used at our experimental session. Um, so in sum, a lot of these barriers we hope to start addressing with these new grants that we've gotten from NIH. And that's about all I have for you guys. Thank you so much for listening.